Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast. I'm Neil Orford and this is the critical care literature that caught our eye in October 2015. Let's start with the New England Journal of Medicine, Hypothermia for Intracranial Hypertension After Traumatic Brain Injury. So this prospective RCT of therapeutic hypothermia for neuroprotection in TBI aimed to add to the existing literature by examining the effect of therapeutic hypothermia in the scenario in which it is often used, that is raised intracranial pressure. They enrolled 387 of a planned 600 patients at 47 centres in 18 countries over five years before the trial was stopped due to safety concerns. Now, patients were eligible if they had an ICP of greater than 20 millimetres of mercury despite stage 1 treatments, including mechanical ventilation and sedation management, and were less than 10 days post-injury. So the patients were randomised to standard care, which was the control group, and they received stage 2 treatments, that is osmotherapy, etc., as needed to control intracranial pressure, or hypothermia to 32 to 35 degrees Celsius plus standard care and stage 2 treatments were added only if the hypothermia failed to control ICP. Both groups received stage 3 treatments which were barbiturates and decompressive craniectomy if all stage 2 treatments failed to control ICP. So they report a mean daily intracranial pressure that was similar between the two groups in the treatment group, the core temperature was lower in the, than in the control group in the four days after randomization, so they got the intervention and it was delivered effectively. The primary outcome, which was the extended Glasgow outcome scale at six months after injury, the adjusted odds ratio for the extended Glasgow outcome scale was 1.53, 95% confidence intervals of 1.02 to 2.3, a p-value of 0.04, indicating a worse outcome in the hypothermia group. A favourable score, which is an extended Glasgow outcome score of 5 to 8, occurred in 26% of the hypothermia group versus 37% of the control group. In terms of secondary outcomes, there were fewer first occurrences of failure of stage 2 therapy to control intracranial pressure in the hypothermia group, 57 versus 84%, and a resultant increase in stage 3 therapies in the control group. And there was no significant interaction between pre-specified subgroups and intervention, and there was increased barbiturate use as a stage 3 therapy in the control group. So this trial, which was stopped early due to safety concerns, found that the application of hypothermia to patients with raised intracranial pressure after traumatic brain injury was associated with worse neurological recovery at six months when compared to standard care alone. The obvious conclusion is that hypothermia is harmful. The alternate possibility is that stage three therapies are beneficial and the decrease 
in stage 2 therapy failure in the hypothermia group resulted in patients not receiving a beneficial therapy, that is, something like barbiturate therapy. Hypothermia does not appear to be of benefit. The benefit of the other therapies, barbiturates, hypertonic therapy, hyperventilation, could be further assessed in large RCTs in the future. Let's stay with the New England Journal of Medicine where we had two articles on remote ischemic preconditioning in heart surgery. Now if you remember earlier this year there was an article that looked at reduced acute kidney injury and favorable biomarker effects associated with remote ischemic preconditioning in cardiac surgery. So the first article was the RIP Heart, a large prospective RCT that enrolled 1,403 adult patients having elective cardiac surgery requiring cardiopulmonary bypass and randomized them to upper limb remote ischemic preconditioning versus sham. Now the remote ischemic preconditioning consisted of four cycles of upper limb ischemia which is um, five minutes of the cuff being inflated to greater than 200 millimeters of mercury or at least 15 millimeters of mercury higher than the patient's systolic blood pressure followed by a five minute cuff deflation. They report that the baseline characteristics were similar. The primary outcome, there was no different in the binary composite endpoint of death from any cause, non-fatal MI, new stroke or acute renal failure up to the time of hospital discharge to a maximum of 14 days. That was 14.3% for ischemic preconditioning and 14.6% for sham. And there are no differences in the secondary endpoints, occurrence of any of the individual components of the composite endpoint at 30 days, 90 days and 12 months. So overall, the RIP heart study reports that upper limb remote ischemic preconditioning did not result in benefit in elective cardiac surgery patients. Okay, so the second article was the ERICA trial, a large prospective RCT that enrolled 1,612 high-risk adult patients having elective cardiac surgery requiring bypass and randomized them to upper limb remote ischemic preconditioning versus sham. It was similar uh, protocols, that is five minutes uh, of greater than 200 or 15 millimeters of mercury above systolic followed by five minutes of cuff deflation. Again, they report that baseline characteristics were similar. Primary outcome, there was no difference in the composite rate of major adverse cardiac and cerebral events, including death assessed within 12 months after randomization. And that was 26.5% for preconditioning and 27.7% for control. There was no difference in the secondary endpoints, which was uh, any of the individual components of the composite endpoints at 30 days and 12 months as well as preoperative myocardial injury, acute kidney injury, serum creatinine, length of stay, biomarkers and health-related quality of life. So again, remote ischemic preconditioning of the upper limb did not result in benefits in the 12 months after high-risk elective cardiac surgery. So that's two trials with almost 3,000 patients published in the New England Journal 
maybe it's time to put remote ischemic preconditioning to rest. Let's move to JAMA and we have the split randomized clinical trial. So the administration of intravenous fluids is a very common intervention in ICU and 0.9% sodium chloride or saline is the most commonly used resuscitation fluid globally. However, there has been a lot of interest in the possible harmful effects of chloride, particularly an association with acute kidney injury when compared to a buffered or balanced solution, e.g. compound sodium lactate. This cluster randomized double crossover study compared the effectiveness of a buffered crystalloid plasmalite 148 to saline for crystalloid based fluid therapy in ICU patients. The split trial was conducted in four New Zealand ICUs with the entire ICUs excluding patients needing renal replacement therapy with end-stage renal failure or admitted for organ donation or palliative care. So the entire ICUs were randomly received to each type of fluid for treatment blocks of seven weeks. The study took place over 28 weeks, so each ICU received each fluid twice. Staff were blinded to the fluid type. The rate and frequency of fluid was determined by the treating clinician. So they report 1,067 patients received buffered fluid, 1,025 saline. The primary outcome was proportion of patients with acute kidney injury at 90 days. The proportion was 9.6% in the buffer group versus 9.2% in the saline group. That's a relative risk of 1.04 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.8 to 1.36. The rate of renal replacement therapy was 3.3% in the buffer, 3.4% in the saline. Mortality was 7.6% buffer, 8.6% saline. None of them were significant. So overall, in a large heterogeneous population of ICU patients, the use of buffered crystalloid compared to saline did not alter the rate of acute kidney injury or other secondary outcomes. This adds to previous retrospective and observational studies but did not completely answer the question about chloride as there were differences in albumin and synthetic gelatin use throughout the study and importantly they did not perform sample size calculations. The treatment effect lies between a relative decrease of in-hospital mortality of 33% and a relative increase of 17%. The authors believe the information from this study will inform the design of a large RCT. Okay, let's stay with JAMA and look at non-invasive ventilation. So we have the effect of non-invasive ventilation versus oxygen therapy on mortality among immunocompromised patients with acute respiratory failure. So the use of non-invasive ventilation in immunocompromised patients with early acute hypoxemic respiratory failure is incorporated into guidelines based on a single center study of 52 patients showing reduced mortality and intubation rates compared to oxygen via Venturi mask. This prospective multi-center trial puts this truism to the test. They randomized 374 adult immunocompromised patients 
of which 84.7% had a hematological malignancy or solid tumour. They also had acute, and it was less than 72 hours, hypoxemic respiratory failure, PaO2 less than 60 on room air or tachypnea greater than 30, or laboured breathing or respiratory distress or dyspnea at rest. And they were randomised to early NIV, which is pressure support ventilation with pressure support adjusted to achieve a tidal volume of 7 to 10 mils per kilo ideal body weight, PEEP of 2 to 10 adjusted to SATs greater than 92%, and it was recommended that they got one hour every four hours for at least two days. So they were randomised to that, early NIV, or oxygen therapy alone. NIV was not allowed in the group randomised to oxygen unless part of a pre-intubation routine. They excluded patients with a contraindication to NIV, pneumothorax, vomiting, etc., or hypercapnic respiratory failure, cardiogenic APO, need for high-dose inotropes vasopressors, acute coronary syndromes, GCS of less than 13, or post-op acute respiratory failure. And they did this in 28 ICUs in France and Belgium. They report that baseline characteristics were similar between groups. All NIV patients received NIV and the median duration of 8 hours within the first 24 hours, 6 hours on day 2 and 5 hours on day 3. The primary outcome of 28-day mortality was 24.1% with the NIV verse, 27.3% with oxygen therapy and that was not significant even though there was an absolute difference of 3.2%. Secondary outcomes of intubation, 38.2% versus 44.8%. So for day 3, ICU-acquired infections, mechanical ventilation duration, ICU length of stay, did not differ. So in summary, this multi-centre randomised trial of critically ill immunocompromised patients with acute respiratory failure reported no difference in mortality, intubation, or other outcomes when comparing early non-invasive ventilation to oxygen therapy alone. However, the authors point out that the mortality and intubation rates were over 50% less than reported in previous work, and power calculations were based on a mortality of 35%. Also, High-frequency nasal cannula were used in about 40% of patients and may have had an effect. So, where does that leave us? You'll have to decide. Okay, back to the New England Journal of Medicine. And we have the heat investigators who published acetaminophen for fever in critically ill patients with suspected infection. So the administration of what we will call paracetamol to febrile critically ill patients for the purpose of lowering temperature is common and until now relatively unchallenged. Perhaps this is due to the perceived lack of harm, the tendency we have to try to normalise physiology and some evidence of benefit. However, this is offset by the evidence that fever enhances immune function, inhibits pathogen growth, increases the activity of antimicrobial drugs and the association of higher early fever 
with reduced mortality in infected ICU patients. These conflicting views lead to equipoise and the rationale for an RCT. The HEAT trial provides this. So the HEAT trial is a prospective trial of 700 ICU patients with a fever of greater than 38 degrees Celsius and infection, which randomized patients within 12 hours of fever to one gram of paracetamol IV or placebo QID from enrollment to the first of 28 days duration of therapy, discharge, fever or antimicrobial cessation or death. Rescue cooling was permitted if the temperature exceeded 39.5 degrees and open-label paracetamol permitted after study drugs ceased. Based on an inception cohort study, they assumed ICU free days, which is the primary outcome, of 16 plus or minus 19.2 days, allowed for 15% inflation in sample size to account for use of rank-based tests and 5% inflation for loss to follow-up, they calculated 700 patients were required for 80% power to detect an absolute difference of 2.2 ICU free days, 28 days. So what did they find? At baseline, the groups had similar characteristics with the most common infection, respiratory or abdominal. In terms of treatment, the median number of study doses was 8. Temperature, the mean daily peak temperature was 38.4 degrees with paracetamol, 38.6 degrees with placebo. It was an absolute difference of minus 0.25 degrees Celsius. The mean lower daily temperature was 37.0 versus 37.3. That's an absolute difference of minus 0.28. And the study drug was discontinued due to sustained resolution of fever in 22. 8% of the paracetamol group versus 16.9% of the placebo group. The primary outcome, ICU free days to day 28, a composite of mortality and ICU length of stay, was 23 days versus 22 days with placebo. Absolute difference of zero days. Secondary outcomes, no difference in all-cause mortality at 28 days, 90 days. Hospital length of stay, hospital free days, renal replacement therapy free days, ventilator free days, inotrope vasopressor free days. There was heterogeneity of response with paracetamol associated with a shorter ICU length of stay among survivors, 3.5 versus 4.3 days, and paracetamol associated with a longer ICU length of stay among non-survivors, and that was a whopping 10.4 days versus 4 days. We'll come back to that. So in infected, critically ill patients with a fever, regular paracetamol was associated with a decrease in temperature of 0.2 to 0.3 degrees Celsius. So that modest antipyretic effect was not associated with an increase in ICU free days or other outcomes, including mortality, organ support, length of stay. Although there was an association between paracetamol and ICU free days in survivors and non-survivors, it's important to note there was no relationship between paracetamol and survival. So what it did show was that paracetamol delays but does not prevent death in patients who are going to die. Now that is hypothesis generating.
because previous studies have reported similar findings. So, will you stop trying to treat fever with paracetamol? Do we need more evidence, including patient-centred outcomes about comfort? Interesting stuff. So let's finish up with something about end of life, and this was published in JAMA. Antimicrobials at the end of life, an opportunity to improve palliative care and infection management. So do we really understand patient-centred care, shared decision-making, particularly for challenging areas like end-of-life care? The administration of antimicrobials at the end of life is common. Up to 90% of hospitalised cancer patients in the last week of life and 40% of nursing home patients with advanced dementia in the last two weeks of life. It is common, it is probably perceived as relatively harmless, and it is probably the path of least resistance. For it to be patient-centred, the administration of antibiotics at the end of life should have the purpose of meeting the patient's goals, that is, either to prolong their life by curing infection or to provide a more comfortable death and the risks should outweigh the benefits. Risks and benefits of antibiotics at end of life has this been adequately examined? Generally we know there are risks of diarrhea, CDF or other, drug reactions and interactions, resistance, the burden of other investigations and associated with infection treatment, catheters, blood tests, x-rays, and perhaps prolonging life in someone who doesn't want this. The potential benefits of prolongation of life and symptom relief, but there are no RCTs, although a prospective observational study reported greater symptom relief and shorter survival in patients with advanced dementia who did not receive antibiotics for pneumonia. What could we do if we are to provide patient-centred care through shared decision-making to this vulnerable cohort of patients? Could we advise patients and families that infections are common at the end of life? Could we discuss the risks and benefits of infection treatment and non-treatment and what each course entails, including comfort care, measures, investigations, etc.? Could we align decisions with their goals? Could we perform RCTs of the effect of different treatment decisions so we can better inform them of the consequences of different decisions? Or could we simply continue to do what we're doing? Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club, October 2015. Come to the site and have a look. Otherwise, we'll see you next month.